Today on the podcast is Kirkland and Ellis, the Ted Williams of bankruptcy law. We talk about the record-setting batting average they posted in 2020 and whether any other firms can match it. Plus, our new legal columnist Vivia Chen talks about how discrimination against Asian Americans plays out in the legal industry. Just because people are all of a sudden talking about it now doesn't mean it's new. And we update you on the biggest stories happening in the legal world right now. Stay with us. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. If you're new here, On the Merits comes to you every week with the best journalism coming out of the Bloomberg Law newsroom. Today, we've got a data dive into the lucrative world of bankruptcy law. But first, here are the biggest legal news stories of the week. Everyone's focused on who Joe Biden will appoint to the Supreme Court and the Federal Courts of Appeal, but a Bloomberg Law analysis found that the new president could have a huge impact one level lower in the district courts. As of this moment, there are, of course, no vacancies on the Supreme Court and only around half a dozen in the appeal circuits. But in the district courts, there are 80 current or expected empty seats. What's more, the vast majority of those empty seats are in states with two Democratic senators, which will make it much easier for a nominee to get through the chamber's confirmation process. Speaking of Senate confirmations, Marty Walsh is now the Biden administration's Secretary of Labor after his nomination garnered 68 votes in the Senate on Monday. He said pandemic response will be at the top of his priority list, but Walsh also faces tough decisions on several employment law rules, including one on when a worker should be considered an employee or a contractor. For the last seven years, Walsh has been the mayor of Boston. And finally, associates with the Wall Street law firm Davis Polk are being showered with cash as the demand for hiring lawyers heats up in 2021. The firm will pay its associates a spring bonus of up to $24,000 and then another fall bonus of up to $40,000 in addition to their annual end-of-year bonuses. This comes in the context of a rapidly recovering market for attorney hiring, with one specialist telling Bloomberg Law it's the busiest hiring season she's seen in 15 years. And that's a perfect segue into our next segment, a deep dive into the law firm Kirkland & Ellis and the incredible amount of cash they're raking in off of bankruptcies. Now, 2020 was a bad year for nearly everyone, But at least financially speaking, it was a great year for law firms that specialize in guiding companies through the bankruptcy process. It's probably not surprising to say that a recession is a good thing for a law firm that works in the bankruptcy field. But Bloomberg Law's Roy Strom actually quantified just how good. Strom analyzed a database of large bankruptcies and found that Kirkland worked on a staggeringly high percentage of them. Like, so high that if the firm were a major league hitter, they'd be going to Cooperstown for sure. I spoke with Roy about exactly how the firm accomplished this and about exactly what is in the database he analyzed. So the database has been around since 1980, and it was started by a professor at UCLA named Lynn Lopucky, who had sort of taken a more empirical approach to studying corporate bankruptcies. Um, And so he made this database that tracks uh, only publicly traded companies that filed bankruptcy with a hundred million dollars in assets in 1980 and so to account uh, for changes in in the dollar since that time it's still pegged to 1980 currency so i think today it's something like companies that have 
about 330 million in assets. So these are we're we're talking about big companies that go bankrupt, not you know sort of small startups. So let's get into the numbers here. You found that there was one firm, one law firm, Kirkland and Ellis, that handled a huge amount of these very large bankruptcies. You know. How huge are we talking and, and you know, what are the numbers here? So it depends a little bit on the timeline you look at. But if you look at just last year, um, Kirkland had a record year. Uh, they represented 23 companies and there were 57 total uh, to, to make it into the database last year. Um, so 23 companies, just to put into context, is n- close to the amount that Kirkland itself advised on uh, over the last four years combined. Um, and it's fairly close to the number of total companies that have made their way into the database on average over the past nine years. Uh, so they kind of outdid themselves, but they outdid everybody else. The statistic we focused on in the piece was that they represented more than 40% of the companies uh, added to the ba- database last year. And that was the highest market share of any single firm in any given year. Uh, in the history of the database. Right. And, and, you know, how are they making all this money? Because that was one of the things you looked at was not just how many bankruptcies that they they advised on, but also how much in fees they received. And, you know, some of these bankruptcies earned them tens of millions of dollars. Where's this money coming from? I thought that bankrupt companies couldn't pay their creditors. How are they paying uh, uh, law firms tens of millions of dollars? What's going on here? Yeah. The dollar figures that we looked at are what you could call pre-filing fees. So law firms uh, have to be um, accepted by a judge to represent these companies in bankruptcy, uh, and they have to put forth a, a sort of a some paperwork that shows here's who we are and this is what we've done for the company so far. And in that filing, they will tell you how much money they've gotten from that company um, in the lead up to these cases. And, and Kirkland had had earned more than $200 million combined uh, just in the lead up to these cases. Of course, there'll be a lot more money spent while the uh, court portion of the bankruptcy goes on. Well, you went even further uh, or even deeper into the data, and you didn't just look at, you know, how, uh, you know, how big Kirkland's bankruptcy practice is, but you looked at, you know, why it got that big. And there was one industry that you keyed in upon that really helped them get to where they were, and it was the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas companies, um, you know, coal mining companies. Uh, what was going on there? Why was that the case? Yeah, so Kirkland and Ellis is a, a little bit of history on the firm. They're from, they're based out of Chicago. They've grown uh, a lot in New York. They have a, one of the biggest private equity practices uh, representing private equity companies in the world. And they opened an office in Houston uh, around 2014. And that office has done a lot of work for um, oil and gas companies in Texas, part of the sort of shale oil boom. When you look at uh, bankruptcies that are happening sort of by industry, really one of the newest trends, a lot of people talk about retail bankruptcies, you know, going through the roof as as people shop online more. Um, But another phenomenon happening in the market is that the price of oil uh, has dipped over the past few years. So there was a big... There was a big surge in, in uh, oil and gas bankruptcies in 2016, and Kirkland did a lot of work for those companies then. And of course, last year, there was another huge surge in oil and gas bankruptcies um, as demand for 
oil and fuel basically plummeted um, when the world shut down. Yeah, I mean, I think during the spring, this is, you know, very widely reported, but there was one time where, you know, the price of a, a barrel of crude went negative, um, you know, and that must have led to a lot of the bankruptcies that, that Kirkland advised on. Yeah, I mean, obviously that didn't last forever, uh, but it was a huge shock to the industry and um, certainly led to um, just the general depressed price of, of, of oil. Uh, so I could see, you know, some people here saying that, you know, Kirkland is, is almost vulture-like, that they're sort of capitalizing on other people's misery. What's the counterargument to that? You know, what, what, how would Kirkland uh, argue uh, its case here? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, bankruptcy, corporate bankruptcy is a tool that the law allows for good reasons, right? Uh, we want companies to be able to sort of shed their burdens in, 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 a, in a court-ordered way and sort of try to get themselves back on track and uh, get going if they can. Um, and to use that tool, uh, you need really experienced people who've done it before, and um, that's lawyers. So if it wasn't Kirkland advising these companies, somebody else would. Um, and then the other point is that um, the fees in bankruptcy cases, they have been criticized, uh, you know, by people who've looked into it. But at the same time, judges do approve every penny that uh, a bankrupt company ends up paying out while they're in this process. And so every time Kirkland wants to collect a fee, they have to tell the judge what they did and, and um, who did it and for how long and I mean, it's worth noting that one, that there are expert, like fee experts, people who are sort of, they are consulted on by courts and, and asked to say, what do you think of these fees? And an argument they make a lot of times for big firms is that they have handled so many of these cases and they have big enough teams and enough ex- experience that really they're more efficient than um, almost anybody else. Um, finally, you know, Let's say I'm seeing Kirkland and Ellis and they're just, you know, raking in the the cash here. And maybe I want to try to do that myself. First off, how would I do that? And second of all, should I do that? Is this something that can be replicated or is this something that even should be tried to be replicated? Yeah. So on the rep on this whether this can be replicated point, I think it's worth uh, I'm a I love sports and I kept thinking about um, batting averages, baseball batting averages. And so Kirkland was the first firm uh, since 1981 to have represented 40% of these companies, which would be like batting 400 in, in baseball, which is, of course, a historic... So you're saying, Kirk, you're basically saying Kirkland is the Ted Williams of, of bankruptcy law. <laughs> That's, yes, exactly right. He was the last one to hit 400, um, and he did it you know, decades ago. And so there was there was only one other law firm to have ever advised on 40% of these cases in a single year. Happened in 1981 when there was only five cases and this firm represented two of them. Uh, so Kirkland got the edge just by like 0.01% or something to, to set that record. But my point about that is that there's not that many Ted Williams out there. So... Um, whether this will be replicated even by Kirkland is probably unlikely. I think 2020 was just kind of a crazy year. 
Okay, that was Roy Strom, a reporter uh, for Bloomberg Law. Roy, thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And now we have an opinion segment for you from a new columnist here at Bloomberg Law, Vivia Chen. Vivia says the conversations happening right now about anti-Asian racism are as necessary as they are overdue. I don't know if this is the come-to-Jesus moment for Asian Americans, but hey, I'll take it. Finally, it seems, we're talking about the racism faced by people of Asian descent. Anti-Asian displays are now in your face. First, there were those videos of elderly Asians being knocked to the ground on the streets of America. And now horrific details are spilling out about the March 16 killings of eight people, including six Asian women, by a 21-year-old white man in Atlanta. You know the issue must be gaining traction because President Biden is talking about it. Whatever the motivation here, I know that Asian Americans are in very, uh, very concern because, as you know, I've been speaking about the brutality against Asian Americans. The attacks have been escalating since the beginning of the pandemic, fueled, some say, by Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump. Without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name... And the stats back that up. There were more than 2,500 anti-Asian hate crimes related to COVID-19 nationwide between March and September 2020, and the actual number is likely higher. That's according to a recent report by the Asian American Bar Association of New York and the law firm Paul Weiss. For Asian Americans, this all hits home. Speaking as a Chinese-American, I can assure you anti-Asian racism is not new. Yet the discussion about race and racism is often framed as a black and white issue in which Asians don't quite figure. What's shocking is that people seem shocked that Asian-Americans face prejudice. Personally, I'll gladly put the nail on the coffin of the model minority. That trope that Asians are strivers who grind away at schools and in jobs to earn their place in America, started off as a compliment to Asian American resilience. But it's awfully old and tiresome. Yet this still defines the Asian American persona in the popular imagination. I'm telling you, those Asian guys love crunching numbers. They probably just made his weekend. <laughs> it's become the default explanation for why we succeed, fail, or otherwise fade into the American fabric. And it's emerged as the reason why Asians are scapegoated in this country during moments of insecurity, such as the pandemic. There's a connection between that persona and the recent assaults against Asians. Frank Wu, the president of Queens College, City University of New York, told me this. The model minority myth is that they're docile, submissive, and won't fight back, which is why they're easy to pick on or exploit. And he added, it also makes them the perfect associate, someone who will work really hard and won't complain, and someone you don't have to make partner. And here's the rub. For all their representation, 
Some say overrepresentation in top law schools in big law. Asian Americans also have the highest attrition rates and the lowest ratio of partners to associates, according to a seminal Yale Law School study. Goodwin Liu, a California Supreme Court justice, summed it up nicely: "They are honorary whites until they are not. They're valuable worker bees, but invisible when it comes to promotion. So being accepted." Just enough is also why Asian Americans seem sidelined in the race discussion, even though every law firm, every company, and every organization seems to be engaged in soul searching about race these days. And it's also why some Asian Americans find it awkward to bring up the racism they faced. Which brings me back to my original query. Are we at an inflection point where Asian Americans will break free from those myths and stereotypes and emerge as active participants in the race discussion? Well, we can hope. In the meantime, here's my proposal, which may sound modest but really isn't so simple. Let's acknowledge that racism against Asians is an American phenomenon. To me. Just getting buy-in for that would be almost victory itself. That was Vivia Chen, an opinion columnist with Bloomberg Law. Visit our website for an extended version of this column with more data about anti-Asian hate crimes and interviews with prominent Asian American attorneys. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our executive producer is Josh Block, and our editor is Jessica Coombs. Special assistance came today from Lisa Hellem. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at blaw. That's at b l a w. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or. Quasi real time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So, if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.